Do you need help protecting your finances as you enter retirement? David Dickens of KC Financial Advisors has got you covered. Welcome to the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Hey there, welcome to another edition of Cover Your Assets KC. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some common housing questions specifically from retirees and what's to know about that topic and all those different moving parts. I'm Walter Storholt with David Dickens, President and Wealth Advisor at KC Financial Advisors Office in Overland Park. We're online at CoverYourAssetsKC.com. We'll dive into the topic here in a moment. But first, David, how are you, my friend? You know, I'm doing really well, Walter. So my birthday is like right around the corner. And I decided it would be kind of fun for my lovely wife and I to go watch. So also right around the corner is the PGA Championship down in Tulsa. Oh, nice. Okay. So we're going to drive down. I got a daily pass to go down and watch a little golf and kind of celebrate my my birthday while watching some golf in Tulsa. Nice. So about the time this episode airs, I will be walking down the fourth fairway, hopefully watching Tiger or uh, Justin Thomas or John Rahm or somebody. Well, that'll be fun. And your uh, your wife is into golf as well, right? Like you guys uh, golf together, if I'm not mistaken, from from prior stories. And she kind of maybe not as diehard as you into the the watching it, but uh, play, plays it herself and get, gets into it as well. Is that right? She does. So yeah. we've been married for almost 41 years. And when she when she and I were getting real serious, she kind of looked around my family. She didn't play golf at the time, and she looked around my family and goes. Well, maybe I better learn this game <laughs> because everybody in Dave's family plays golf. So that's great. Yeah, she's she's become pretty proficient at it, and we have a good time. We, I mean, we probably half my golf is probably played with her, so we have a good time with it. Wow, that's fantastic! I love it and uh, neat because I know you know there's couples out there where the golf is the guy's thing, and the 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 wife is like, oh, golf. You know, so it's neat that you guys are able to uh, connect over it instead, and uh, and and have a common and shared interest there. That's great. Yeah, it is fun. All three of our daughters play golf, which neat. is kind of unusual. Yeah, and um, so it's yeah, it's nice. It's really a nice thing to share. It's a sport in the Dickens blood. It sounds like. <laughs> And it's one that arguably you can play pretty late in life. That's the nice thing about it, right? Like golf and tennis, there's a reason they're popular among retirees. It's it's not the the worst on your joints and some other things. So <laughs> Exactly. That's a great thing. Well, let's talk about housing on today's show. Since you're feeling so good about things, <laughs> let's dive into some important questions. It's a big important question because... I guess for many of us, David, it's maybe the, the largest asset we'll ever own or manage. I realize there may be balances of portfolios that might be larger, but in terms of a single item, you know, it's going to be kind of the biggest thing in a lot of our lives that we'll have control over. And so we want to get that part of the equation correct, whether we view that house as a investment or if it's, uh, you know, just, hey, it's the place that we live. We just don't want any big surprises there because it should take a nice slice of the retirement planning conversation, both from a financial standpoint, lifestyle. There's a lot of things that sort of hinge on housing in retirement. So on this episode, we're going to cover some of those common questions that we get from retirees and hopefully hit on an issue that's probably on the minds of a lot of our listeners, David, especially with how crazy the market has been the last couple of years. You kind of can't go anywhere or do anything without talking about the housing market, even if you're not a buyer or seller. It's kind of in front of our faces all the time the last few years. So Yeah, every uh, houses on every street are selling for crazy prices these days. And so it makes you think a lot of different things about you know the house you own or maybe the house you wish you owned. 
so yeah, we're, yeah. I think we're going to cover maybe five or six different little topics here, and hopefully it's of interest to a, a wide variety of our listeners. Some of these elements will be evergreen, meaning that if you hear this episode a year or two after we record it, the advice will generally still apply. Some of these things may change rapidly, however. And this first one, let's start there, David, because it is what's in the news at this exact moment that we're recording this show in uh, mid-May 2022, just for context purposes. Uh, Interest rates, I have written here in my notes, interest rates are so low. Now, I wrote this actually a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Obviously, things have ticked up a little bit. Uh, we went from the threes to the to what the fives now, and maybe it, we're headed higher even more in the near future. But historically, I think we're still pretty low in terms of interest rates. Um, you, you have probably been getting the conversation a lot, and you'll get this question whether interest rates are low or high. Should I try to pay off my house quickly or just pay as little as possible and put that those extra funds elsewhere. So it's kind of that common question of should I pay extra on the house or, or not? How do you typically advise people in that realm? Well, it's super situational. So most of my clients don't have a mortgage anymore because most of my clients are retired. And I have, I have some clients that are retired that still have a mortgage. I got a smile on my face when you said about how rates have really ticked up, which they have. But my first mortgage, Linda's and my first mortgage was 1981. And it was 12 and 7 eighths percent variable because... <laughs> You couldn't really get or afford a fixed rate mortgage back then. And all I could think of was, oh my gosh, how how much can this go up every year? And the lady that was helping us at the mortgage company goes, well, you know, it could go down. And I'm thinking, <laughs> sure. And really, since 1981, interest rates have been doing nothing but basically going down. And so we have had a nice little tick up here, which nice if you're a saver, not so good if you're a borrower. But... The answer I oftentimes give my retired clients who do have a mortgage is that as your advisor, I am not, and again, this isn't advice for anybody. This isn't specific advice for anybody listening to this, but it'll maybe give you some context for thinking about your situation. The clients that I talk to, generally speaking, I am not concerned about them having a mortgage because they usually have three or four or five years left to go. Most of what they're paying in that mortgage is principal. Well, that's just paying themselves, building up the principal, taxes and insurance. Well, they're going to have the, they're going to have taxes and insurance after their mortgage is gone. So the interest component of an older mortgage is really fairly inconsequential to somebody's living expenses in retirement. So I usually don't get all worked up about somebody having a mortgage unless they've just they're retired and they just moved into a bigger house with a bigger mortgage. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, that's going to be hard to maintain on the assets that I see that you have over the years. So it's a broader discussion, but generally speaking, I don't think there is a great reason to try to pay that more, that last mortgage off quickly, taking money out of, especially if you have to take money out of an IRA, which is a taxable transaction, just to get rid of a mortgage, which is mostly principal, interest, and taxes. That is a uh, wise to realize, I believe, that this is something that is going to vary from person to person. As with most things we talk about, you're going to want to look at your specific situation, but uh, some good overall guidance there, at least some of the things that go into your mind, David, to consider when people ask that question. I think that's helpful. 
I imagine you also get the question from folks, you know, I, it's it, it used to be pretty standard, pretty common when you retire, you downsize into a smaller home in retirement. Seems like that's a little bit more of a debate now. Uh, do people ask you if that's still a wise thing to do or how much of a desire is it to, to do that downsizing? They do. And frankly, Linda and I are thinking about the same. We've been thinking about that for, you know, a while, just thinking when you get into your... 60s, 70s, how long do you want to hold on to the big house that you raised all your kids in? And what are the benefits and obviously the downsides of having a smaller home? Downsides are, you know, if you've got a bunch of grandkids that want to come over, you can't have too small of a house. But downsizing has significant benefits that, you know, pretty much anybody that thinks about it for 10 minutes can figure out. You're going to have smaller utility bills. Um, you have less to take care of, which is pretty awesome, especially if you're still mowing your own lawn. Um, you may get into a place that has maintained exteriors, uh, painting and roofs and things like that. If you downsize, you might be moving into a newer construction, which would have a newer roof and a newer air conditioner or furnace. Uh, you probably would be moving into something that would have the first floor master bedroom on the first floor. So you're not doing stairs anymore. There are a lot of reasons, a lot of good reasons to downsize to a smaller home in retirement. But what gets tricky and what Linda and I have been working with, working through is downsizing is different from right sizing. (laughs) And so if what you really want is a home that's about two thirds or three quarters of what you had, but you want all upgraded electronics and all upgraded cabinetry and all upgraded countertops, well, you probably spend the same amount of money for the smaller house than you'll get for your current larger house. And that's certainly not downsizing in retirement. That we call right-sizing. And that can be kind of expensive. So, you know, be careful to know what your goals are. If, if your goal is to really get a, get a maintenance-free place that costs you less or maybe you're going to sell a house for three quarters of a, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand. You're going to buy a place for five hundred thousand. Well, that's two hundred fifty thousand dollars in your pocket. That's probably not going to be taxable, and that can be a really good thing to help your retirement along. So, lots of different reasons to do downsizing in retirement, and I do see we I do discuss that quite a bit with my existing clients. Great guidance there as well. Downsizing, big part of the puzzle, no doubt about it. By the way, if you've got questions about your specific situation, always feel free to reach out to David. 913-317-1414 is that number to call. To get in touch with the team at KC Financial Advisors, 913-317-1414 or online at coveryourassetskc.com. Let's talk about home equity lines of credit, David, with so, you know, huge increases in home values. A lot of people thinking, "Mm, maybe I should tap into that, um, you know, equity a little bit. So is a home line of uh, equity or credit line a good place to borrow money from if you've got a major purchase like home upgrades or maybe you want a new car and you want to tap into that equity instead of a traditional loan or uh, maybe there's some sizable medical bills somebody needs to deal with? Uh, What do you think about using a, a HELOC or a home equity line of credit? So I think in a lot of um, instances, it's perfectly fine. What it's not, so um, when would those be? Well, maybe it's an emergency fund. Maybe you just haven't done a great job of building up an emergency fund, but you've done a great job of building up your home equity. And so if something that's truly an emergency comes in, having a home equity line of credit in place, where basically you're just writing a check 
to get cash, well, that can be a perfectly fine way to fund an emergency. But it's not a it's not a credit card because it'll have it'll probably have a lower rate than a credit card. But you, what you need to understand when you're using your HELOC, your home equity line of credit, is that you're you're taking money out of the home equity that you've built up over time. And as long as you're good with that, as long as you're spending that money on things that are truly important to you, maybe healthcare, uh, maybe a new car, but maybe not a new car that's three times as expensive as what you'd normally do because you feel like you have access to free money in your home equity line. At some point, when you move out of that house, the home equity line of credit has to be repaid, obviously. And that just reduces the asset you have, which is your home equity. And then the other thing I'd be careful with, there's there are always fees that go along with setting one up. There's usually an annual fee for maintaining it. Sometimes when you borrow that money, you uh, maybe you don't have maybe you only have to pay interest for the first five or ten years after which the loan has to be paid back amortized over whatever that period is five years ten years fifteen years but what you want to do is when you enter one of those agreements and start borrowing on it you want to clearly understand what the terms of that loan what those terms are because if you get to the point where you can't repay or make good on those terms, theoretically, you could lose your house to the mortgage company. And that is obviously not a good thing. Yeah, that's a good point as well, David. So be a little bit careful on just saying it's kind of like that, you know, you open your eyes and it's like that big, um, <laughs> I don't know, um, a big pizza, you know, and, and are your eyes bigger <laughs> than your stomach when you see those home equity line possibilities? You know what I mean? It's yeah, it's kind of a piggy bank that you've yeah. been funding for years, building up your home equity. So, you know, it's up to you whether you're tapping that piggy bank for a good reason or a silly reason. And hopefully all we always make only good financial decisions. All right, this next one's going to sound very specific, David, but there's a reason for it because I know you've probably had people consider doing this in the past as a particular strategy. If someone comes and they say, hey, I've been thinking, should I sign my house over to my kids so that they can't force the sale of it down the road in order to pay for nursing home costs and those kinds of things if I end up needing care? Yeah, so I'm assuming that the they in this is Medicaid. So any kind of you get into a spend down situation that usually has to do with someone whose assets have been roughly depleted. Maybe they're in a nursing care situation and they need some way to pay it. And Medicaid government program is the thing that typically gets tapped for that. So a lot of times people say, well, I, if I can shuffle off my assets to my heirs, then Medicaid won't be able to get to those assets to recover the expenses that they've paid on my behalf while I'm in long-term care. The difficulty with that is that Medicaid has a five-year look back. So what they're going to do is say, over the last five years, have you given away meaningful assets to people, including your family members or heirs who were going to get the property anyway, but you did that just to avoid paying for your own long-term care and you want Medicaid to do it. And if you did that over a five-year period, they're going to audit your financial situation pretty well. And they're going to find out, yep, gave away this um, IRA, gave away this CD, gave away their home equity in the effort to try to get their 
assets down to a very small level so that Medicaid would kick in. So no, <laughs> you can't sign your house over to your kids in an effort to not have Medicaid take that asset if you do it within five years of needing Medicaid. Now, if you happen to have, you, your home is a protected asset if you have a spouse living there. So you don't even have to worry about it if you're thinking that you might need Medicaid, but your spouse is going to need a place to live. So that's a protected asset. There are various limits to how, you know, how grand of a house you can have. But the, the Medicaid five-year look back is super important as you're contemplating maybe needing some Medicaid and what assets do I get to retain in my estate and what are Medicaid going to take back? That's a big one. Uh, I know a lot of people looking, I mean, I love the spirit, right? Like looking for creative solutions to those problems, but that's one area where we've got to be a little bit more careful due to some of those rules in place there. They're always on the lookout for when we're trying to be crafty, right, David? <laughs> yes. Always keeping yeah. an eye out. Good. Yeah, it's just a bill that the otherwise, if you can't pay it, then the U.S. taxpayer is going to pay it. And, you know, the Medicaid people are, are trying to play defense for the U.S. taxpayer. So it, it all makes sense, but it feels a little cruel if you get caught into that uh, five-year look-back period and, and, you know, your heirs end up paying for your health care. Yep, they pay the price in that situation, so be careful there. Again, we're talking about common housing questions from retirees. Another one, what complications, if any, could the house create when it comes to my estate plan? So kind of taking that previous conversation a little bit further down the line under more normal normal circumstances. Yeah, so a lot of times when we get into estate planning discussions in this podcast, I will mention the three most common things that, that have to go through probate because because things weren't put into place before the person died. So those are usually bank accounts, your automobiles, and your house. So regarding this, the complication would be if you don't have a beneficiary designation on, on file at the county where your deed to your property is, is located, then it doesn't matter what your will says. It doesn't matter what notes you've scribbled to your heirs somebody has to gain title to that house before it can be distributed to your heirs. And that's going to happen in probate court. And you're going to pay an attorney thousands of dollars. You're going to wait. You as the heir are going to wait six or nine months. And then eventually you'll get possession of your parents' home. The way to avoid all of that is to have a beneficiary designation added to the title of your home. And you do that at the county courthouse. You can It's a do-it-yourself process, or you can pay an attorney a relatively modest sum of money, maybe three, four, five hundred dollars to do that for you. But you actually have to do it. Again, it doesn't matter what your will says. Your heirs won't gain title to your home without taking it through probate unless you put a beneficiary designation on that. The beneficiary could be your trust. In in our case, the beneficiary is our trust. And our trust says who gets the house. You could name your two or three or four kids. You could name grandkids. You could name nieces and nephews. But if but if you don't name someone on the deed, it's going through probate. That's good to know, David. And uh, I'm sure we could spend a lot of time talking more about estate planning, the house, and obviously all the different elements that go into uh, that. But that's a good primer 
in terms of this uh, conversation today about these common housing questions from retirees. Now, one last one. This isn't something you typically hear a whole lot about when you're younger, but when you get into retirement, you start getting marketed material a lot more on reverse mortgages. And so let's talk and, and spend a few moments there. How frequently are your clients asking about reverse mortgages? Are they ever a good idea for the folks that you're working with? Uh, kind of give us the skinny on that conversation. Yeah, so I rarely field this discussion from clients. I have a couple of clients with reverse mortgages and they have them for various reasons. Uh, and it's a really deep and sometimes complicated topic. So uh, just kind of at a high level, you got to be at least 62 to get one. Uh, you can only get one on your principal residence, which means if you ever have to move out of that house, then the, the reverse mortgage has to be paid off. If you die in that house, then you never pay it off. It's just been eating away at your home equity over the years. A reverse mortgage is, a, is an okay way to take home equity out of your home to live on. So uh, earlier in this conversation, we talked about a home equity line of credit. Well, maybe you just want to get a reverse mortgage and you plan on living in your home a very long time. So what happens with a regular mortgage is you sign a bunch of papers, the bank gives a bunch of money to the seller who's selling you the home and you agree to make, make payments to the bank for 30 years, let's say. A reverse mortgage does the reverse thing. The bank gives you a lump sum of money that is sized based on the amount of home equity that you have in your home. And the bank will either do that in a lump sum or maybe you set it up that they pay you $400, $500 a month, $1,000 a month for a particular period of time. So it's a way of extracting the home equity that you've built up over the years out of your home. That's the good. That's how they work. The bad is that the, the outstanding loan balance grows over time because you're not making monthly payments on, the, on what you've borrowed. The interest accrues over time. It just gets added back to the reverse mortgage balance. There are fees involved. You don't pay those explicitly, but your heirs will pay them once, let's say, you die and they need to sell the home and pay back the bank for all of the money that the bank has sent you as the proceeds of your reverse mortgage. If you ever need to move out, let's say you need to go to the assisted living. Well, the loan has to be paid off then. And that can be, you know, you may not have the money to pay off that loan. So the property goes to the lender. Uh, maybe you can't afford to stay in the home. You want to stay in the home, but you can't because taxes and, and uh, insurance have gotten really expensive and maintenance has gotten very expensive and there's repairs that have to be done and you can kind of think of your own scenario. But in that case, if you can't make those payments, then the bank will foreclose on that reverse mortgage and you end up not having a home. So it's complicated. It's very situational based on somebody's retirement situation. It can be a good source of retirement funds, but you got to understand you're just spending down an asset of yours that you've worked years to accumulate, that being the home equity in your account, in your uh, home equity in your home. So it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. You just want to enter into that type of agreement with your eyes wide open, understanding all the costs, all of the 
fees and charges and the ramifications to you if you ever need to move out of that house. Very good. That's a really good breakdown and a starting point for understanding reverse mortgages and the conversations that retirees typically have about that topic. And if anything that we've talked about today strikes you as something you want more information about or you've been putting together a financial plan and haven't been able to really dive into, whether it's just haven't gotten there yet on your own or your advisor never really kind of analyzed some of these housing questions with you, um, give David a call and the team at KC Financial Advisors can see how the house fits into the overall financial puzzle, what you can do to make sure that you address some of these major concerns and make sure that you're on the right track. The number to call to get in touch once again is 913-317-1414, 913-317-1414, or go through the website to get in touch and find out more information at coveryourassetskc.com, and we'll link to that contact info in the description of today's show. David, appreciate the help and the guidance. I know that these are some uh, questions that you're fielding and you're working on housing stuff with your clients. We didn't even talk about like investing or real estate as an investment. And I know you're getting questions about that kind of stuff as well. But today's show mostly dealing with kind of like the personal questions about housing in retirement, but certainly a big piece of the puzzle, right? It is a big piece of the puzzle and it's it's a little different for everyone. But frankly, when you get to retirement, you're looking at all the different assets and how, how am I going to piece together my retirement income and the inheritance I'd like to leave to my heirs, how can I piece it all together so that I make really smart decisions in retirement? And housing is always a piece of that. In fact, next week, we're going to talk about five common IRA mistakes. This isn't really a a listener question episode coming up, but these are all questions that I get from clients on a regular basis. So I'm piecing together a podcast for next week on five IRA mistakes. Hopefully that'll be super valuable for people that are nearing or in retirement as well. They won't have names on them, but they might as well, because that's how common (laughs) common they'll be. So I love it. Uh, So five IRA mistakes to avoid. That'll be the next time around, right back here on the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. So come back and join us for that. Until then, for David, I'm Walter, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great week. Investment advisory services offered through ChangePath LLC, a registered investment advisor. ChangePath LLC and KC Financial Advisors are separate companies.